Yeah, Luke 8. Uh, last week, I, I showed a graphic that showed in the 2010 census that all Christian entities in Texas County showed a decrease. Right? There was a decrease in evangelicals. There was a decrease in mainline Protestants. There was a decrease in Catholics. The only religious expressions in Texas County that grew uh, from 2000 to 2010 were the others, which are non-Christian religions, and the nuns. And the nuns grew the most. The, the others grew by like 138 in 10 years. The nuns grew uh, by about 1,600. By There was just an enormous rate of growth. Now, what's interesting about the nuns is most all of the nuns would, I mean, most all of the nuns came from the religious groups, right? They, they weren't people who moved to Guymon and were had no religious convictions whatsoever. By and large, the nuns were people who in 2000 had identified as Baptist or Free Will Baptist or Nazarene or Roman Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian. And over 10 years, they had ceased to identify with any sort of Christian religion at all. And so if you were to talk to the, those who identified as none, what you would find is they were likely many of them raised in church. At one point or another, most many of them had made professions of faith. They may well have been baptized. Their families, like their mom and dad, may well still be active in the local church that they were raised in. And some of them might even say, if you were to ask, well, are you a Christian what they might say is, well, yeah, I still believe in God. I still believe. I just don't see any need for the church. I think me and Jesus can kind of have our own thing. I don't need the church at all. And so when we come to God's Word, we find that that sort of idea is not present. That there is nothing in God's Word that gives us the idea that there is such a thing as a non-church attending Christian. Right? Those who were saved, it says in the book of Acts, they joined with the other believers. The majority of the New Testament is written to churches. And, and in many cases, like with Timothy and Titus, the books that are written to individuals are written to pastors to tell them how to lead the churches. So the church is, a, is meant to be an integral part of the life of someone who is born again as a disciple of Jesus. So the idea of being a nun and yet still being saved is not something we find in God's Word. So how, the question would arise, how do we understand the disconnect? How do we understand the disconnect between many of these nuns being raised in church, many of these nuns making professions of faith, many of these nuns having been baptized, many of them even saying, yes, I'm still a Christian, but them being nuns? Well, I, I do believe God's Word has an answer for us on this. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 8, verse 4. should be on page 788 uh, in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Luke 4, or I'm sorry, Luke 8, verses 4 through 15. It says, Now, when a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him. He, Jesus, spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell by the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the sky ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and when it came up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And yet other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as much. As he said these things, he would call out, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the disciples began asking what this parable meant. And he said, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, they are told in parables so that while seeing, they may not see and while hearing, they may not understand. Now, this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are the ones who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts 
So they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are the ones who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Yet these do not have a firm root. They believe for a while and a time of temptation, they fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked out by worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word with a good and virtuous heart. Hold it firmly and produce fruit with perseverance. Title of the message tonight is False and Near Conversions. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather, to study your word, to sing your praise, just to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We do pray as the song we sang tonight, revive us again, O Lord. Let your spirit fill us and renew our zeal and our excitement and our fervor to serve you. God, tonight we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to open your word up to us. What we're going to talk about tonight is difficult. And Lord, we want to we want to receive it with humility. Father, we want to let it sink deep into our hearts and bring forth the fruit it ought to bring into our lives. Make us all tonight the good soil and let us bear fruit for your glory. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the familiar parable we're looking at, it teaches different ways people respond to the gospel. We're probably all familiar with that. We're not going to look at the parable as a whole tonight. We're just going to look at one particular response. Right. The one particular response of a false conversion. In case you haven't guessed my belief, the reason that so many of the people in our community identify as nuns despite the fact they were raised in church and made a profession of faith and might have been baptized and would even still say they're Christians, the reason they identify as nuns, the reason they are the way they are, is because they are not truly saved. What they have experienced is a false conversion. Now there is, in this parable, there is one of the kinds of soil that I believe best demonstrates a false conversion, and it gives us some characteristics of a false conversion. Look at verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil. When it came up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now that's interesting, but look at verse 13. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight. Those on the rocky soil are the ones who, when they have heard, receive the word with joy, And yet these do not have a firm root. They believe for a while and in a time of temptation, they fall away. This points to a false conversion. A false conversion is when someone responds to the gospel in a way that gives an appearance of salvation without them ever actually receiving salvation. Now, let me be clear here. I don't believe This passage teaches a false conversion because it makes me feel comfortable. It doesn't. I don't believe this teaches about a false conversion because I like the idea of false conversions. I don't. I believe this is a false conversion because of the way Jesus himself describes it. So to make sure we get the full picture of what Jesus meant by the rocky soil, I want us to look at the other statements he made about the rocky soil. Right To get a, a harmonious picture of what he's saying. In a similar way, these are the ones sown on the seed on rocky places. Who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And yet they have no firm root in themselves. But are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately they fall away. That's Mark. Matthew says... The one sown with seed on the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution occurs because the word immediately falls away. Now, when we look at all three of these combined, we see several characteristics of a false conversion. Now, the first one is odd. They receive the gospel with joy. 
And honestly, I don't know how to take this. Right? Because when you look at this passage, we're only told of one kind of soil who receives the gospel with joy. And it's the rocky soul. Even the good soul, which we know is one who is saved, does not, it does not say they receive the gospel with joy. Only the rocky ground hearer receives the gospel with joy. And perhaps what Jesus wants us to know about this is not to judge what happens with someone by their outward appearances. The outward expression of joy coming from someone receiving the gospel does not necessarily tell the entire story of what's going on in their hearts. Perhaps Jesus wants us to recognize that just because a person responds in a way we perceive to be the right way with joy doesn't necessarily mean they have genuinely turned to him for salvation. Secondly, we're told they have a shallow faith or a shallow understanding of the gospel. Right? They have no firm root uh, in themselves. All three point to that. This points to a, a shallow faith or a shallow understanding of the gospel. And there are probably many ways this could happen. It could be they didn't count the cost of following Jesus. They thought all that talk about denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus applied to others, but not them. Perhaps they wanted a savior who would forgive their sins, but not a Lord who would make demands on their lives. But the result of not counting the cost is they're following and not the counting the cost of following Jesus is they have a shallow faith or a shallow understanding of the gospel. It could be they came to Jesus thinking he would fix all the problems of their life. They came in a moment of crisis. They thought if they prayed a prayer, suddenly every problem in their life would be fixed. And it may have seemed to work for a little while, hence the joy. Yet this resulted in a shallow faith and a shallow understanding of the gospel that cannot sustain it through the difficulties of life. Could be that they are called what is a cultural Christian or a nominal Christian. These are folks who for one reason or another are expected to be Christians. And seem to fulfill this expectation. They may have been raised in a Christian family. Or married into a Christian family. And they were expected to make a profession of faith. And be baptized as a part of this family. Perhaps they're a person who could see the need. For some sort of spiritual religious aspect to their lives. They know all the right words to say on how to look Christian. But they never fully grasp the gospel. They don't understand the level of devotion Jesus demands from those who follow him. The result of this is a shallow faith and a shallow understanding of the gospel. Whatever the case, their shallow faith and their shallow understanding of the gospel is what leads to the next characteristic of a false conversion. They endure or believe temporarily. Again, all three accounts make it a point to say they don't persevere in the faith. Mark says they fall away. Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke says they fall away. Matthew and Mark both say that it's only temporary what they do. And this is the main reason I believe this refers to a false conversion. The person only believes or endures for a little while, temporarily. Luke says they only believe for a while. Matthew and Mark both say they are only temporary. The clear Indication of the wording here is there comes a time where this person no longer follows Jesus or no longer believes the gospel. And so what causes them to fall away? And that leads to the last aspect. They fall away, when you look at all three, because of temptation, affliction, or persecution. Luke's account tells us they fall away in a time of temptation. Matthew and Mark tell us they immediately fall away when they encounter affliction or persecution. Now, the wording is not a slip up in the faith. Right? This isn't someone who struggles and falls and then gets back up and keeps going. That's not the picture that Jesus is painting in any of these accounts. It is someone who completely falls away from Jesus. Their shallow faith and their shallow understanding of the gospel is fully exposed when temptation, affliction or persecution comes into their lives. Now, the temptation, affliction, or persecution expose the fact they did not have a genuine faith. 
And although some who fall away may become like atheists or agnostics, many do not. Many will continue to profess faith in Jesus, and where you'll see the difference is in the way they live their lives. So, so picture it. They receive the gospel with joy, and they begin to live for Jesus. They come to church. They find ways to get involved. They may invite other people to church and just generally seem to be what we used to call being on fire for Jesus. And this happens until they are hit by temptations, afflictions, and or persecutions. And what happens when they're hit by temptation, affliction, or persecution depends on what they're hit by. If they're hit by temptation, their devotion to Jesus continues until their desire for this temptation, whatever it is, becomes greater than their devotion to Jesus. At this point, they give up their devotion to Jesus in favor of their temptation, whatever this temptation may be. Now, by temptation, I'm not talking about a momentary lapse in holiness or purity or devotion where they sin, experience conviction, feel remorse, repent, and then move out in devotion to Jesus. What I'm talking about is what Jesus talks about in these gospel accounts. Is that they give in to this temptation and begin to live in it as what we would call a way of life. This becomes how they live their life. And as they live in their temptation, their devotion to Jesus falls by the wayside. Because it, it must, right? You cannot... Walk in darkness and with Jesus at the same time. First John is clear about that. Either our devotion to Jesus eats away our darkness or our darkness eats away our devotion to Jesus. But we can't do both at the same time. Now, if asked, this person will often still profess to be a Christian. They'll say something like, I'm not living as I should, but yes, I'm still a Christian. Or they'll give some sort of rationalization as to why their sin is okay. There is a reason you and I, we just don't understand as to why it's okay for them to do what God's word says thou shalt not do. At this point, it's important for us to remember the main difference between a disciple of Jesus and someone who isn't a disciple of Jesus isn't necessarily in how much they sin but in their attitude toward their sin when they are convicted by the Holy Spirit. Disciples of Jesus take the side of the Holy Spirit against their sin when they are convicted. This means someone who is genuinely saved will acknowledge they are guilty of sinning against a holy God. They will feel genuine remorse over their sin. They will confess their sin to God. They will repent of their sin so they can be forgiven and cleansed, as 1 John 1.9 says, from their sin and be restored to their relationship with God. Right. So the believer, the disciple, when the Holy Spirit convicts them, rather than them being defiant about their sin and about their apathy and about whatever it is, they are broken over their sin and are brought to a place of repentance. The unbeliever, on the other hand, takes the side of their sin against the Holy Spirit when they're convicted. This means the unbeliever will make excuses for their sin. Or they will try to justify their sin. They may get angry with anyone who calls what they're doing a sin. I've even had professing Christians claim to be closer to God while living in open, unrepentant rebellion against God. The unbeliever feels no remorse for their sin whatsoever. And they will not admit they are guilty of sinning against a holy God. Someone who takes the side of their sin against God is not saved. They did not lose their salvation by this choice. Rather, this choice reveals they were never really saved to begin with. Their temptation uprooted their shallow faith, proving it was never genuine to begin with. So that's if it's temptation. If they're hit by afflictions or persecution, something different begins to happen to reveal they were not genuinely saved. First, like many of us, they go through these times and they 
endure it. They pray about it. They try to persevere and keep on. But the persecutions, the afflictions, they continue. God doesn't seem to be answering prayer. He doesn't seem to be alleviating the suffering. And the person who has not been born again starts to become a bit disappointed with God. They've kept their end of the bargain. They prayed. They came to church. They did the stuff. And yet God is not doing His end of the bargain by taking suffering out of their life. At first it is just disappointment, but they can still kind of keep going. But the longer the suffering goes on, the more their disappointment grows. And disappointment eventually becomes disillusionment. And at this point, their loss of devotion to Jesus becomes visible. Now, up to this point, most likely they've been able to maintain some sort of a facade of devotion to Jesus. They still give the appearance. They're still probably coming to church. They still probably do all of the outward things that everyone saw so that people would say, yes, they're still persevering. But inwardly, a change has been happening for quite a while. Inwardly, things have already been deteriorating as things got hard. Their inward devotion to Jesus has long since fallen by the wayside by the time they hit full-blown disillusionment. Their disappointment has been eating away at their faith And they no longer see the value of prayer. So their private prayer devotions are falling away. They no longer see the value of of reading your Bible. Because, again, reading it, God's not keeping His end of the bargain. Why bother? And so all of the inward spiritual devotions that strengthen our relationship with Jesus begin to fall by the wayside. But again, outwardly, no one can see those sort of things. Until full-blown disillusionment sets in. At this point, they're no longer able to maintain the illusion of outward forms devotion provide. At this point, they give up altogether. This is where they drop out of church. This is where they stop returning texts. This is where they stop communicating about church and about coming and things like that. They may continue to verbally affirm their faith in Jesus. But unless they are genuinely converted, they will never live their faith again. And again, I'm not saying this. The afflictions caused them to lose their salvation. That's not what happened. The afflictions and persecutions uprooted their shallow faith, proving it was never a genuine faith to begin with. Now, our first response, almost certainly for any of us, is to say... That all sounds super duper judgmental. After all, who are we to say someone's faith isn't genuine? And I absolutely agree with you. That's why I do not encourage you to go to someone and say, I don't think your faith is genuine. You just have a false conversion in your life. I don't think that's what we ought to do. But at the same time, we have to recognize That is the picture being painted by Jesus in His Word. That is what Jesus says. They hear with joy. They don't have a firm root. They believe for a while. And then when it gets difficult, they fall away. That is the picture Jesus paints. Now, if this parable was the only place we saw anything like this where there was such a thing as a false conversion... We might could say, well, shouldn't take parables that literally it probably doesn't mean what it says. But it's not the only place in God's word where we see this. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, they'll enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus warned about people. He warned, made a similar declaration in, in the Gospel of Luke. He warned about people thinking they were saved when they really were not. 
These people, we would say they had prayed for salvation. They had been baptized. They had attended church. As you can see, they had served Jesus. They had been active in their service to Jesus. But despite this, they're not genuinely saved. They were false converts who did not find out until it was too late. That is the clear teaching of Jesus from His Word. And while this is a terribly disturbing thought, not only do we find it in parable form, not only do we find it in explicit form, we find examples of false conversions in God's Word. And I want us to look at a couple tonight. Turn to Acts chapter 8, page 837. And I will read a long section. It's Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 23. I'm going to read the whole section, but we're only going to look at just a little bit. Now, a man named Simon had previously been practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And all the people, from small to great, were paying attention to him, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they were paying attention to him, because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic arts. But then when they believed Philip, as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were being baptized. Now, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was repeatedly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could acquire the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart will be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and bondage of unrighteousness. Now Simon makes this profession of faith. Verse 13. And is baptized. Now, considering he had been involved in witchcraft before and sorcery, this must have been pretty amazing. Yet, Simon makes this profession. He follows Stephen around. But you notice, I think, notice kind of what's going to happen when he is. It talks about specifically that he observes the signs and miracles taking place and is repeatedly amazed. Remember, he has done magic tricks to astound the people. Now, Stephen is there. And he is preaching the gospel and he is performing, the Holy Spirit is performing, or Philip is performing miracles through Philip. And he's astounded. Once again, he sees this great power and he's amazed and intrigued by it. And the Holy Spirit, then the, the apostles come and they begin to lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit. And his action, I'll give you some money and you give me that power that you have. To give the Holy Spirit to people. Now. What. He was tempted in this point. This is where his temptation comes. Because again remember. What was Simon before he believed. He was a magician. And he was someone important. Who everyone thought. Had the great power of God. Yet after his conversion. He was just. One of the crap. He had lost his place. Of prominence. Philip was prominent because of the signs and wonders he was doing. The apostles were prominent because they were praying and people receiving the Holy Spirit. And so a time of temptation comes upon him. He wants to be someone again. He wants the great power again. And so he asked the apostles if they would give him this power if he paid them. A time of temptation revealed The shallow faith and a shallow conversion. I mean, look at what Peter says to him. May your silver perish with you. Now, perish there. Peter's not just talking about physically dying. I looked at several commentaries today. 
Most of them say what Peter is saying there. May you and your money both go to hell because of what you think you can do with the Holy Spirit. You have no part or share in this matter. That's talking about salvation. Your heart is not right before God. That means he's lost. Repent and ask for forgiveness. He's telling him basically get saved. You are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of unrighteousness. Neither of which are things that are ever applied to genuine Christians. The strongest possible terms, every commentary I check today says, Peter is telling Simon, you are not saved. Simon had a false conversion. And in a moment of temptation, his shallow faith was uprooted. Let me give you another example. Turn to John 6, verse 48. Page 815. John 6, 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this is possibly the strangest teaching Jesus gives in any of the gospel accounts. He is the bread from heaven that came down. And if anyone wants to live, they must eat his flesh and they must drink his blood. And the people, he goes on, then the Jews began to argue. How can this man say, uh, give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man... And drink his blood. You have no life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me. I live because of the father. The one who eats me. He will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven. Not as your fathers ate and died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So this is difficult. How do the people respond to this teaching? Look at verse 60. So then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this statement is very unpleasant. Who can listen to it? Basically, what they're saying is this is difficult to understand. This is an unpleasant teaching. How are we supposed to accept this? But notice who's asking this. It's not the crowds, is it? Verse 60 specifically says many of his disciples. Now, remember, Jesus had not just 12 disciples, but many disciples. He had 12 disciples that he chose to call apostles, but he had many disciples. So these people were people who had already determined they were going to follow Jesus and they would do his will and they would be his. And yet he teaches something they don't like and it's suddenly very unpleasant. And they asked the question in verse 60. Jesus asked the question in 161. Is this offensive to you? As the disciples complained about the teaching was hard to accept, Jesus asked if they're offended by it. Then in the next few verses, he doubles down and he never resolves the tension from the need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He talks to them, he shares things with them, but he never lightens the mood. He never lightens the teaching at all. And so look at verse 66. Now, as a result of this, many of his who? His disciples left and would no longer walk with him. They fall away. And John makes the point to say they would no longer walk with him. Again, this is speaking about a false conversion. These people had at some point believed in Jesus. They had committed their lives to Jesus. They had followed and walked with Jesus. They were His disciples. But when following Jesus goes from Jesus making food to give them, and from Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons and putting religious leaders in their place to a hard teaching they do not like, they're out. Now check out verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, these are the apostles, you want to leave also? 
Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have already believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Simon, as the spokesperson, gives the answer. They, Jesus asks him, are you going to leave too? Simon answers where we're going to go. Now, there's nothing to indicate Simon understands this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood any better than the rest of them do. As we've already seen in, in our initial text in Luke, they asked him, I don't understand your teachings. Very often, in fact, Sunday in our Mark study, we're going to see they miss, they miss the stuff that Jesus says a lot. So there's nothing to indicate they understand his meaning there. But what they do have is a genuine faith. They don't have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is. They had believed He was the Holy One of God. No, they didn't understand what He said, but He had the words of eternal life. He was the One. Their faith was genuine. Their salvation was legitimate. And they stayed. Let me show you one more example of a, a false conversions. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 2 and 19, They went out from us. But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out that it would be evident that they were not of us. And John's talking about the people of the church. They had left the church and were no longer a part of the church. And why had they left the church? Because they had never really been a part of the church. And what he's talking about, he's not talking about they weren't really attending. He means they weren't really born again. They were never really saved. He said, if he goes on to say, if they had really been among us, if they'd really been saved, they would have remained. But they went out so that it would be evident where they were, they were not really a part of them. False conversions are the reasons they left. Not only does God's word warn against false conversions, but also against near conversions. A near conversion is where someone almost gets saved, but doesn't quite cross over into faith in Jesus. Two quick examples. Turn to Mark 12, page 773. We're looking at all these because I want you to see them and know that this isn't just my idea. This is what God's word says. Mark 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up hearing them arguing. With Jesus and recognizing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, if you're familiar, this is a big issue. What's the most important commandment? They ask that a lot. Jesus answered the foremost is this. Hear Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. So Jesus gives this answer. That kind of astounds the guy. He, he realizes Jesus has gotten right past all of the theological fluff that the scribes and the Pharisees spent all of their time arguing. And that's the heart of it. There is only one God. So we got to love God with everything we are. And then we got to love the people God made. The, the, the scribe recognizes this. And he says, well said, teacher. You have truly stated he is one and there's no other beside him. To love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors, oneself, is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe, he gets it. There's only one God. He has right doctrine as far as that goes. He even understands the level of devotion the one God deserves. To be loved with all things. And he says to love God in this way is more important than all of the burnt offerings and all of the sacrifices. He gets it. But notice what Jesus says to him next. When Jesus saw he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared question Jesus any longer. Now, this guy had religious activity. He was a scribe. This guy had right doctrine. He understood there was only the one God. He understood the level of devotion the one God deserved. And yet, he's not far from the kingdom, but he's not in the kingdom. You think about it like what James says about the devils know there is one God and, and tremble. 
The point with this is someone can have a measure of religious devotion. They can be able to give right doctrinal answers and still not be saved. Someone can be close to the kingdom of God or not far from the kingdom of God, but not actually in it. One more. Turn to Acts 24, page 853. Paul's given a defense of his life. Uh, Acts, not Romans. After being arrested in Jerusalem. Good gracious. Acts 24, verse 22. But Felix, having a quite accurate knowledge about the way. So now keep in mind what he's saying. Felix, he knows a quite accurate knowledge about the way. The way is Christianity. So this means Felix knows about Jesus. He knows about his death. He knows about the resurrection. And he knows about those who are beginning to follow Jesus and be a new way in Judaism. He has a quite accurate understanding. So he even knows it properly. When Lys- he says to them, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. He gave orders for the centurion uh, for Paul to be kept in custody, yet to have some freedom, not to prevent any of his friends from providing for him. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, who was Jewish, sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he, Paul, was discussing righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and responded, Go away for now. And when I have an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he was hoping money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and talk with him. After two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. So we'll move on from that. Don't need that. But Paul comes before Felix, who has an accurate, quite accurate understanding of the way. As Paul begins to talk to Felix, He shares the gospel. He talks to him about faith in Christ. And as he begins to discuss with him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix, my Bible says, becomes frightened. King James says he trembled. The English Standard Version says he was alarmed. Why did Felix respond in this way? Felix was afraid, trembling, and alarmed because he knew he did not have the righteousness the law demanded. And he knew he was facing the judgment to come. He was convicted of his sin. He was terrified about his standing before God. But he never trusted in Jesus for his salvation. I want us to see this one because it's important for us to understand. People can be convicted of their sin. People can be afraid of the judgment to come and still not trust in Jesus for their salvation. While conviction of sin is a necessary part of salvation, conviction for sin does not equal salvation. Conviction on its own does not save. Conviction only saves when it pushes us to Jesus to receive His Salvation. Felix was almost saved. Felix had a near salvation. He knew the right truth. He was convicted. The Holy Spirit was bringing him to Jesus. But he never crossed the line. Four reasons. I wanted us to look at all of this tonight. First is we must know the reality and danger of false and near conversions. We must be aware Of the danger someone is in if their entire spiritual life is based on something they did in the past. Whether they walk the aisle, they prayed a prayer, they baptized or joined a church. But it shows no fruit from this in the present. Nowhere in God's word is salvation described as something that happens in the past but has no bearing on our present A person whose entire spiritual salvation and life is based upon all of this back there, but there's nothing evident of it here, is in a dangerous position. They are likely 
had a false conversion or they likely had a near conversion, but it is not likely they had a legitimate conversion. This is true whether it's us or whether it's a loved one. We must know the reality and danger of false and near conversions. Secondly, we must be clear with the gospel. The message of the church, the message of Christianity is not do better. It's not sin less. It's not turn over a new leaf. The message of the church is the gospel. And the gospel itself is not a catch-all statement that we get to define however we want. The gospel isn't I'm going to tell you the truth and it is the gospel truth. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't a select truth that we take and want to emphasize it's right by saying it's the gospel truth. The gospel has been defined for us in God's word. The gospel is the message of Jesus. Specifically, the gospel is the message Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Not that he died on the cross for sin. Not that he died on the cross as an example. Not that he died on the cross because of an unjust religious system. He died for our sin. It is the message that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Yes, He died, but He did not stay dead. He literally, physically, bodily arose from the grave. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It's not a faith event. It truly, historically, legitimately happened. The message is that Jesus' death and resurrection are the only hope for salvation We have salvation is not found in good deeds. Salvation is not found in morality. Salvation is not found in baptism or church attendance or increased religiosity. Salvation is not found in any good works we have done, will do or ever could hope to do. Salvation is found through faith alone, in Jesus alone, through grace alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. And the gospel demands a response. Proper demands of the gospel, response of the gospel to repent of sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender to follow him. In this day of so many conflicting messages, the church of Jesus Christ must be clear with the gospel. The unfortunate fact is many false conversions are because of an unclear gospel presentation, are because people were told to be baptized, to be religious, to stop sinning, to do better, to be more moral. And so they did it. And it didn't help because none of those things save. We must be clear about the gospel. Thirdly, we must focus on making disciples and not merely securing professions of faith. Jesus said no one enters the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is is not something human effort can accomplish. This is completely a work of the Holy Spirit. When we focus on securing professions of faith, we end up teaching people to trust in their decision and not the work of the Spirit on their behalf. They trust in the fact they raise their hand at the end of service. They trust in the fact they prayed a prayer. They trust in the fact they've been baptized. They trust in the fact they walked the aisle and came to the altar. Even when there is no evidence of the Spirit's work in their life, even when there is no evidence of salvation as defined in God's Word, they hold tightly to the fact they're saved because they made a decision and someone told them that decision saved them. Sort of decisionism is a breeding ground for false conversions. And then lastly, we must be busy about the mission of making disciples of all nations. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the lost, those living in false religions, those who have false non-Christian spiritualities, are going to face the terrible judgment of God. But not only that, The false converts are going to face the terrible judgment of God. The near converts are going to face the terrible judgment of God. We must move with urgency and we must make disciples. 
the rocky ground people have a shallow faith and a shallow understanding of God's word and the gospel of Jesus. What would happen if someone took those with a shallow faith and understanding and began to meet with them regularly and to study God's word with them and pray with them and answer questions for them? Is it possible their shallow faith and their shallow understanding would blossom into genuine and deep faith and understanding? I think so. I think it could, but it requires the time and the effort from us to work on making disciples and not just securing decisions and saying, go with God, my friend. We must be about these things. Our community is filled with false converts. Our community is filled with near converts. And no matter how much we may hope they're going to be okay, no matter how much we may hope it may turn out well for them, it is not. And if we will not go to them, who on earth will? Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. Help us tonight, Father, to take what we've learned and want to apply it to our lives and examine ourselves. Is there fruit? Is there evidence of Christ in our lives? If so... Uh, then, Father, let us move out to do the things that we need to do to try to help others. Lord, if there's not, challenge us, convict us about that. Let us see Lord, if there's no fruit. Let us see that we're not genuinely saved and bring us to a point of salvation. Use us, Father, to reach the nuns in our community. Use us, Father, to reach out to them, to talk to them, to share the gospel with them, to be clear about the fact Jesus died for their sin call on them to repent and believe and surrender their lives to Christ. Use us. Use our church. Use us as individuals to reach God for Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.